And we have to understand the reason why we are so negative and hard on ourselves is not because it's so fun. Oh, I love to whip myself. No, it's to be safe. On some level, you believe, oh, it's better to be hard on myself than someone else being hard on me. It shapes me up. It keeps me on my toes. It makes me move forward. Or when I'm hard on myself, I don't put myself out there and become a target. Whatever the reasons are, there is a protective mechanism behind negative self-talk. And when you realize it doesn't really protect me, it doesn't really make me feel better. So let's shift the focus from protection to, let's say, being more content, being more appreciative. The mind follows you. The mind is a very, especially the subconscious, a very faithful servant. But it just does what it has been told early in life, and it just keeps on doing it until we are changing it. So do this little counterbalancing, redirecting, compassionate self-talk for two weeks. You're going to notice your self-talk decreases by 80%. I see this all the time with my clients. It really, really works well. But these things need to be in place. The emotion needs to be in place, the focus, and the sense of thank you for trying to protect me. But it's not necessary. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by physician and author Friedemann Schaub to discuss his book, The Empowerment Solution, Six Keys to Unlocking Your Full Potential with the Unconscious Mind. Friedemann discusses the importance of loving yourself, how we each have a responsibility to show up with our innate talents and gifts, how anxiety can serve as an inner compass, and how personal freedom starts in the small things. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Friedemann Schaub, MD, PhD, is a physician, researcher, personal development coach, and the author of the award-winning book, The Fear and Anxiety Solution. His research and advice have been featured in many publications, including Nature Medicine, Oprah Magazine, The Huffington Post, Reader's Digest, Teen Vogue, and Shape. He is the host of the Empowerment Solutions podcast and joins me today to discuss his latest book, The Empowerment Solution, Six Keys to Unlocking Your Full Potential with the Subconscious Mind. Friedman, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to speaking with you. It's a little bit different than some of the other guests that I've had on, so I'm really looking forward to this. And I enjoyed your book. I want to read the your your first one, the Fear and Anxiety Solution, because I've had issues with anxiety myself, and I think it can be helpful. And we'll probably end up talking a little bit about anxiety this morning, because it seems like especially in the United States, there's a anxiety crisis at the moment. I think that you gave some statistics at the beginning of the book that between April 2022 and 2018, three times as many U.S. US adults reported symptoms of severe psychological distress. And that can be understood, you know, given the pandemic. And also the politics in our nation, where 80% of Americans say that they are worried about the country's future. And I imagine that the future of the world also is is at play here. And it seems like with all of this 
anxiety and fear, sometimes it feels like there's no solution. But mm-hmm. you are saying that there is, that we can find some freedom. And you've identified what you call these survival patterns. And I wanted to talk about these a little bit, since it's the core of the book. And I wanted to ask you first, what are these survival patterns? And just briefly what they are, and why do we adopt them? You know, fear and anxiety, I mean, the first book I really wrote all about what is it, how do we create it, and how can we uncreate it? And Mm -hmm. And it's largely also based on my experience working with clients on fear and anxiety since now over 20 years. But what I found when I look at people that have anxiety, like I had anxiety, you said you have some anxiety. So when you, when you look at people, it's not just the anxiety that keeps us stuck. It's actually how we respond to the anxiety. And what I found was so interesting that when I help people to overcome the emotional mental blocks that create the anxiety, unless we changed also the behavioral patterns, they were easily falling back into the anxiety. It's like, you know, if you act as if, well, eventually you just become again that what you're acting out. And and there are certain patterns that just were over and over repeating themselves. And we all know those patterns and they're all a part of our repertoire. And so there is overall the avoidance pattern, the avoidance mode where we just don't want to take risk or get in trouble or be visible and get rejected. And then there is a pleasing pattern. And the pleasing pattern is from just wanting to blend in or fit into, you know, wanting to find this romantic, loving partner who's going to complete us finally. And in between there is the helper, the caretaker. The funny thing is that these things seem to work to make us cope with anxiety. That's why they are called survival patterns, but they are also creating more anxiety. And that's what I found that I was a complete pleaser and peacemaker and caretaker. It didn't really cure my anxiety. It just made me more dependent on other people and it made me more disconnected from myself, but it didn't really help me with anxiety. So this book is really about identifying these patterns in yourself. And there's not only one that usually people have, I could say I have all six of them at the different times in my life. And how to use those patterns actually as a way to get closer to yourself and to understand yourself better. Yeah, I like that. And that was one of the questions I had was with the, the patterns that you identify was whether or not people would have just one or all of them. Because as I was reading, I noticed that a few of them, I was like, well, I think that one applies. And I think that one applies. <laughs> and then a couple of the, I'm like, well, none of this applies to me. Like um, which one? Well, the, the two that I identified with were the victim. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of work to get away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the procrastinator. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't identify with which one? I didn't identify too much with the invisibility one or the the chameleon, especially the chameleon. I did not identify with much of that at all. You know, that's the interesting thing. And I think I'm, yeah, I always feel like, well, 
when you are looking at the patterns on paper at the first glance, let's say, for example, the invisibility one, it may feel like, hey, I'm out there, I'm doing podcasts, I'm, you know, yeah. totally visible. But then we have to also understand that maybe we're just not showing all of us. Yeah. You know, there is an invisibility. I had the invisibility pattern. I mean, I, I always was also very ambitious and, you know, out there, I wanted to become an actor, actually. So, yeah, that's not very invisible. But I knew I was hiding always something, which was my vulnerability, which was, you know, me actually being someone who is scared. I was more loud and gregarious than someone who actually admitted, you know, I'm, I'm actually insecure. So invisibility is not just about what other people are, you know, or not letting other people see all of us. It can be also just let's not see part of us because that's too scary. And I think a lot of men are struggling with this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just don't want to appear vulnerable, don't want to appear like they have a problem. And that's why the invisibility pattern is such an important one to look at, even if we feel out there. And so that's what I think we just have to take time to realize there is a little bit in all of us. Right, and right. <laughs> yeah, well, I know in the past, the invisibility was pretty dominant in my life. But I again, I've kind of worked hard not to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I can see how most of these are things that we all kind of struggle with in various ways. And one of the things that I really appreciated is, you know, my background's in philosophy. And so much of the book is about self-reflection mm. and self-examination, which I think is incredibly important. Yeah. And it seems to me that I know some people don't really engage in that. And it's tricky too, because there is this tendency to lie to ourselves. And, you know, I, I caught myself doing that. I was last summer, I was going through my journals. I was, I always record my dreams. And so I had this idea that I was going to go through and type out all my dreams that I've had over the past 30 some years. And then I, and I didn't finish it because I got sidetracked by just reading the journals. But there were moments where I was reading something and I was like, I was blatantly lying to myself. Hmm. And it was kind of eye-opening. And I knew that I was lying to myself. But I wonder, do we always know that we're lying to ourselves? How did you know in that moment? It, yeah, it was obvious that I was had been lying to myself. It was... And was it a feeling own. or was it just the facts? It, it was the facts. I, I was trying to convince myself that I was someone that I was not. Yeah. And so it, it was pretty obvious. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tricky one because, you know, lying to ourselves, I think being honest to ourselves is ultimately what we are going for. But right. I think there is also the first step to accept that we don't really know ourselves, so we cannot really be honest to ourselves. So for me, lying to ourselves is already a, a recognition. There is something that you realize, yeah, hey, I, I don't really speak the truth to myself. But I think a much more, you know, uh, ubiquitous problem is that people don't even want to talk to themselves. They don't want to even listen to themselves. They don't want to even see themselves. So the self-reflection, thank you that you mentioned this, that's kind of the thread 
through all of this. So it's not just the pattern. It's like each pattern is kind of a, an excuse for you to look a little bit deeper inside, whether you relate it or not. It's just something where you find a little bit of closer connection to yourself. And for me, I believe that is the reason why we are anxious, not because there are wars, not because there is political you know, instability or any of those things, inflation, blah, blah, blah. It's because we don't really feel at home with ourselves. And if you don't feel at home with yourself, it's scary. Where do you belong? Where do you find a sense of safety? Where do you feel comfort? Nowhere, not on the internet, not necessarily on TV, not necessarily with your relationships. So we have to really turn inward in order to overcome the anxiety. We cannot get ourselves out of this disconnect and the anxiety by distracting ourselves, by overdoing, by trying to control everything. I mean, I tried all of this, didn't really work, but it's, it's just something that I feel the crisis is not the anxiety. The crisis is a disconnect of self, that we are like little zombies walking around an autopilot, trying to function, trying to fit in, trying to get likes, trying to get ahead, trying to survive. But that's all a huge waste of time and energy. Why do you think we do this? Big question. I think it's a societal <laughs> problem. I really, I blame society. I think society, I mean, okay, let's not get political, but I'm living right now in Europe for a reason. The American society is really challenging to live in. The way it's set up is really difficult because right from the start, it's about competition. I mean, when I came to the US and I saw college sports, it blew my mind. Why are 80,000 people watching 18 year olds or 16 year olds playing football? I couldn't. And so this attitude of always having to compete, always being ahead, and then all these systems of, you know, you go into debt right away when you have some kind of an education and then you have to pay your debt and then you have to go after the dream. And then at some point you may have reached a dream, but then you're 65 and then you're hoping to cash out and then you die. I mean, that is the life that so many people are living. It's a, it's a track that so many are on. And I think that's what I write in the book about the great resignation yeah. after COVID. So many people said, no, I don't want to be on the track anymore. This is not worth it. And you know, when I talk to young people and when I, watch on my YouTube channel, the comments of young people about the fear of dying. It's mind blowing. So many young people in their 17s, uh, 70s, 80s, 19 year old tell me, I don't really want to live because I don't want to live like my parents, but I don't see an alternative. Yeah. And that is the sad part. And why don't we see an alternative? Because we don't even ask ourselves, what do I want? We are told from our teachers, from our parents, from our peers, you should go to an Ivy League college. So that means you have to have every second of the day planned out. There is no freedom. There is no autonomy. There is no individuality. You are a good little performer. And if you don't, you are left behind and no one will love you. I mean, that's kind of how it's ingrained. And, and inside these kids know, man, this cannot be it, but they also don't know what to do instead. And it's, it's yeah. sad. Yeah, it is. And I agree with absolutely everything you just said. And 
that's been one of my personal frustrations is the feeling of being trapped and it's being trapped for me. I always, you know, it's neoliberal capitalism and, you know, I'm a college professor and I feel trapped by that Mm. because when I first started going to school, everything switched, you know, where when I started this educational track, 70% of college professors were full-timers and only 30% were part-timers. And now it's upside down. Yeah. And there's no job security. There's no, and I want to talk about security in a little bit. And it's like, I go in and to teach, I feel like with, especially the students that I'm not giving them the tools that they need to really succeed you know all the colleges are about student success but the image of success is always a capitalist image Hmm. of perpetuating this system that we are in and so i'm personally trying to find a way out but i also want to still work with students to say you know there's got to be another way we've got to kind of come together to find our power (laughs) and dismantle this system. And so many people, you know, students, they get trapped with student loan debt, which you mentioned, and I'm right there with them. And it's difficult. It's difficult. How is it that the patterns that you identify and for each one, you also give a key, which I think is really important. Do you think that those keys can help us create a better world? Well, I think we do have this as a responsibility right now to even save the world. I mean, we are on the way to destroy it as we yeah. speak. And the earth is going to be fine without us. Don't yeah, get yeah. me wrong. We, we, we may be gone like the dinosaurs and the earth is going to keep on going. But I think we have a responsibility. And we have a responsibility to show up with our innate talents and gifts. And we don't even know what they are because we are not asking ourselves. We are not. I mean, I was on the track of academia, you know, thinking I should become a professor in cardiology or a researcher. And and I felt exactly like you, trapped. But for some reason, I was lucky enough to find so much agony in myself by hitting the head against the wall for two years. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm so unhappy that I couldn't help it but look for help. And I found someone who actually helped me just to find the courage to say no and do something that deeply disappointed my parents. My dad almost got a heart attack and didn't want to talk to me anymore. My mom certainly had some also bad emotions about me quitting medical, you know, my medical path and the research path. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was exactly what I needed to do because I remembered what I'm here for. I remembered my purpose. And I think we all have it. We all have something inside that, like a piece of the puzzle that fits in and is here to innovate, is here to support. And But we have to get out of the, the basic survival fear. You know, imagine you would get out of college without having to pay huge debt and having to find a way right away a job. Or imagine you had basic health care. And you wouldn't have to be afraid of getting sick. Imagine there would be just a bigger 
net that carries you, that gives you more space and not just pressure. It would be all possible, but it's something that is not ingrained in the system. It's not ingrained in the consciousness. And, right. and I'm not an anti-capitalist. I love that there is so much room for entrepreneurs and, and invention, innovation, but there needs to be more sense of feeling held by the system and held by the community. Everyone, and this is what I really find so striking different between Americans and Europeans, everyone fights for themselves. Yeah. There is more and more the sense of, I need to fend my, when I, when I were invited for dinners or for a vacation with my American family, everyone eats breakfast by themselves. Everyone is just like, when I go somewhere, you know, to a French or a German family, Everyone waits for everyone to sit in the table, no matter how long to eat. And it's just a different mentality. This having to fight on your own is a scarcity mentality. And I think that is something also we have to shift. I know I'm, I'm maybe generalizing here, but there is an overall sense that you cannot rely on anyone, not on science anymore, not on government anymore, not on you know, your neighbors anymore. Everyone seems to be against everyone. And that is also something that we need to turn around and yeah. open ourselves up again to, to connect. Yeah. It's a complex problem here. And I think it's deeply rooted in the American psyche. One of my, well, my favorite book is Thoreau's Walden. And, you know, he noted in the early 1800s that the massive men lead lives of quiet desperation. And, you know, I think it's part and parcel of the American project that, but at the same time, I think that we've forgotten something really important. I was reading de Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And one of the main themes in there, he, he addressed this individualism. And when he interviewed people, it was always about self-interest properly understood. Mm -hmm. And the idea, and this is what I think that we've largely forgotten, is that I can only flourish when the community I'm in flourishes. You know, and it places the individual within community. Yeah. You know, and I think individuality, individuality is not counter to, you know, being connected and, yeah. and supporting the community. So yeah. it needs to be both. I think. Right now, we have the worst of both. So we are not really becoming our own authentic individuals because we are more going into what we are expected to do or be. And at the same time, we are not really connecting to our communities because we are so busy surviving that there is no space, no energy, no time left to really make a difference. And so something needs to shift and, you know, with this book, it's, it's really starting to ultimately end back in your heart, you know, for lack of a better word. It's like, you know, when we are all in our heads, scheming, planning, controlling, well, we are not really connecting to the best aspects of ourself. And, right. and that's sometimes what it takes, you know, yes, maybe you cannot love your neighbor and maybe yes, you cannot necessarily right away be connected to others or trust others you can at least learn to have a better relationship with yourself. And that changes how you see others as well. Yeah. Yeah. A very wise person said to me recently that the longest journey is from the head to the heart. Fully agree with that. Absolutely. It's a lifelong journey. 
And, and it is really a f- something that also in modern society, unfortunately, you know, the heart connected to emotions, emotions connected to, oh, that's irrational, that's unpredictable, let's just swallow a pill and not feel anything, because the head is really what we need to rely on. And so everything that's an emotional guidance system, everything that can tell us also what is right for us or, you know, what is good for us, is suppressed, is ignored, is self-medicated, is distracted from, and it's all about our intellect. But our intellect is completely overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the mass of information we are really bombarded with, by the thousand different voices we are hearing. And and unfortunately, we're hearing so much noise that we don't hear our own inner voice anymore. And, And that's how we certainly get lost. I mean, that is a one way where we can just, you know, feel we're spinning around, confused where to go. And and these days even, you know, that's the worst, what to believe in. Because there is so much untruth out there that truth is not even anything we we really know anymore. What is truth? There's just uh, everything can be be an alternate reality or whatever they call it. So it's it's quite interesting. It is. And I've been saying for a while that we are in an epistemological nightmare (laughs) because we just don't know what is true. And one of the things I've suggested to my students is, you know, you have to learn to sort of surf the, you know, I'm in Southern California, so I have to, you know, couch the language here. You have to learn to surf the waves of uncertainty because I see the beliefs that people will latch onto as very often being quite problematic and they feed into this ongoing vicious cycle i think of keeping us in this state of anxiety and suffering well yeah and and unfortunately you know what you said about surfing i totally agree with that i love this image but it takes a certain kind of balance. Yeah. And if you get swayed by one, you know, strong voice of, you know, basically everything is a lie and you cannot believe anything and, you know, everyone just wants to get you, well, you're not very balanced. You're constantly off balance because you're questioning anything and everything. And, and I think the best way to find balance is to first cut out all these noises and really start, you know, getting the balance from within. I mean, when we really look through the history of life, I mean, I grew up in Germany and my dad was in Second World War and, you know, he went through all this craziness with Hitler and, you know, Holocaust and horrible things. And But even that was temporary. It was horrible and, you know, just things evolved from it. So whatever we are going through right now in a global way will also be just temporary. But we know that what is for us, at least the only thing real is, who we are and how we choose to show up in that scenario of the world stage, you know, that theater play that just plays out and, and that's what we cannot lose. And and my, my dad often said how many people he knew get seduced by those voices, you know, Jews are bad and, you know, they need to be kicked out and take off. It's, I mean, this, this whole antisemitism is something that, is another seduction that so many people, because even at you know at that time when there was not low internet or whatever as a distraction, people got seduced into. 
And that's the same story again, anti-Semitism, you know, xenophobia, all these things that are on the rise. It's this looking for some enemy that we can all rile up against because we don't really feel safe within ourselves. Right. And I think that is really where we see history repeating itself and we have to learn from it. We say, no, if everyone in, you know, the Third Reich would have said, no, we're not listening to this and we're going to just start meditating for a while. Well, they would have actually realized, no, this is my good neighbor. I don't know why I should all of a sudden see this person differently just because he's a different religion. It's, right. I mean, maybe it's wishful thinking, but I do believe there is a goodness inside of us that we just sometimes, unfortunately, ignore. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, the to refer to something that you said a little bit earlier, it's we need to find the signal through all the noise and that signal here is the inner self the but how how do we go about doing that is it through meditation is it how can how can we begin this healing process well you know i love the subconscious mind as an inner guide and the subconscious basically is you know this part of the mind that is beyond the intellect that's the part of the mind that is all about the emotions and the memories and the dreams and everything that basically is more irrational more profound and sometimes also much more metaphorical but there is a guidance system inside of us that we can pay attention to so i often feel like the first start is pay attention to what you feel throughout the day start just noticing yourself i talked to a friend today <laughs> she told me that since she grew up she had never allowed herself to stop she always had to do and work and produce and and why? Because she never allowed herself to listen to her feelings. And recently, a few things happened in her life that were traumatic and difficult. And that's the first time, you know, she's 42, that she actually is willing to say, stop, I have to have to listen, I have to know. And, and she doesn't even have the words for feelings. And this is something I often see that people have like two words when they describe the feelings, I'm anxious or I'm happy. And there is not like a lot in between. And so just starting with learning what actually is specifically what you're feeling. You know, I'm feeling a little nervous. I'm feeling a little insecure. I'm feeling a little maybe bored. And just find names for your feelings because your feelings are there whether you pay attention or not. And that's one way in. And then the next way in is to ask yourself what thoughts are connected to those feelings? What are really thinking that makes me feel this and then you realize wow i'm thinking the same thing over and over again which is i'm not really belonging here no one really likes me no one fits in or maybe i'm trapped i cannot find a way out i don't know what to do and so when you repeat this over and over again you're like wow okay you're living in this inner construct and where does this come from and then you go even further back and say when did i pick up this belief when did i find you know the the way into getting into this trap for the reason of security, for the reason of getting some, you know, maybe accolades or expectations met. And, and then you can start rebuilding. At that point, you can say, okay, these are all beliefs that may have served me at one point, 
I had the belief of I have to always achieve to be loved. Didn't get me really a lot of love, but it's something that, you know, was deeply ingrained from the past and changing those beliefs and realizing I have more to offer than just being this or that. That is the journey. And that's, you know, what these books are about, but that's also something that I think any kind of inner work is about. Just meditating is basically kind of, you know, putting the volume down, making it quieter, but it doesn't necessarily get you to the answer. So I'm not, I'm a fan of meditation, but I'm not a fan of meditation as a therapy because I feel like we need more input and more direction than just saying, I let go of my thoughts, I let go of my feelings, and that's all I do because, you know, well, great, but then what? I mean, you know, it's about discovering too. It's about finding out too. I found that everyone that really looks inside feels like this is a lifelong treasure hunt. Man, I'm discovering so much about myself. It's fun. Yeah, I think it's really important to be mindful of what's going on inside of our heads. Because so often, I think what happens is we just tell ourselves these stories over and over and over. And then we believe the stories. And I think one of the powerful things that you write in the book is that we can change our stories. But first we have to identify the story, right? Yeah. And you know, it's interesting what you said about the lying to yourself. I mean, these stories are ultimately also lying to us. You know, like uh, we all know that, that, you know, when you feel a little bit insecure, and you have all the evidence that people like you or that you are really successful or smart, there's only one person that may question you. It's enough to erase all the positive and all you focus on on the negative. And that's where, you know, these patterns come in where they say, okay, one person is enough to make you feel bad. So that's the one we focus on. That's a danger. And that's a distortion of reality. In some ways, it is like a lie. And we have to you know, again, sift through what is the truth, what is the untruth, what is the lie, and ultimately it's a choice. What do we want to believe in? I mean, I can find 50 reasons to hate myself and I can find 50 reasons to love myself. So which one do I choose? Which one is the one? That is a free will we have. And I think we have much greater service when we have a good relationship to ourselves than we we have a constant battle with ourselves. That's really not doing anything for anyone. Yeah. Well, we're with ourselves our entire lives, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We better get along. You're right. (laughs) Well, but yet so many of us don't, you know, I think that we get stuck in those negative thoughts about who we are. And, and that's sad that we will spend our lives doing that, not liking ourselves. But does anyone really show us how to like ourselves? I don't know. I mean, I don't know a lot of people that said, oh, my mom and my dad told me, you should be nice to yourself. You should right. be, you know, supportive of yourself. And, you know, in the in the book, I'm talking about this woman who was, you know, called the ugliest woman in the world. Mm-hmm. And she has these, you know, sad genetic disorders. And she was someone who was always told by her parents, that she should feel good about herself. She is wonderful. And, and those messages really were her savings grace. But 
she also had really exceptional parents. And I'm not sure that all of us can say that. I mean, my parents were doing the best they can, but they told me, don't feel good about yourself because that's arrogant and no one likes arrogance. So always try to find faults so that you get better versus finding good because, you know, you get complacent and all of those kind of messages that I think a lot of people get. And so remembering that we can be the source of our own self-acceptance or self-love, that's a big one because we are looking from everyone else to get that, but not from ourself. And, and that's, you know, one of those patterns of the pleaser or the lover, you know, where you just think like, I don't really like myself, but when this person likes me, I feel for five minutes a little bit better. Unfortunately, it only lasts for five minutes. And then you again, you know, fight with yourself or you're, just you know yelling at yourself and then you have to do another good deed or you have to bend over backwards again and then you get a little pen on the back and a little kiss on the forehead and whoo feeling good five minutes and that is you know trying to heat a house with a match you cannot do that you have to really find that whatever you're looking in others to get you have to find this in yourself yeah i liked in the book because it's something that was told to me was that I'm really hard on myself. And so I could relate to all of that. And it's been difficult to actually stop the negative self-talk and to take that moment and say, you know what, I'm okay. (laughs) You know, I kind of like me, but it's really difficult. It's a really difficult task. And does someone just have to get sick of belittling themselves all the time? Or is it, you mentioned a friend who had something that occurred that kind of prompted things. Is that what has to happen? Is there, is there, is is it a shock from the system from outside? You know, it can be, but you know, often it's also, it's not really that hard to not be mean to yourself. Mm -hmm. First of all, you have to know that you are. So that's already great. And many people are not even aware of that. I'm always thinking about this workshop I did where I told people to write down all the negative things they say to themselves. And then they had to hand it over to their neighbor. And the neighbor had to read to them in the you, you are ugly, you are fat, you're this. And how dare you being so mean to me? And it's like, you know, we do this to ourselves all the time. So that was kind of an eye opening moment for them. But what the most common mistake is, is when we are listening to ourselves and hearing how mean it is, we don't really feel like that we should respond to it with compassion and kindness. We usually get even more mad at ourselves. Say, why am I so mean to myself? What's going on? What's wrong with me? So it's like putting more fuel to the fire. So when you imagine yourself having learned this kind of being hard on yourself. And you may have learned it when you were five years old, 10 years old, just because maybe someone ridiculed you, or maybe it was just, you know, what you thought you needed to do in order to get somewhere. When you imagine this more younger version of yourself, like an old own child, having this kind of self-talk, what you tap into is compassion. It's not about the inner child or whatever. It's about what is my emotion that I want to respond to with when I have negative self-talk? And that is compassion. I'm so sorry that you say this or think this about yourself. 
and then you have to guide in another direction specifically like you know when people for example say you know no one likes me you say well doesn't matter i like myself there's so many wonderful things about me and so you're basically the mind is a, a flow it's a current and if you want to just stop it it builds up it builds up it builds up and then it overflows and then we get panic attacks so we have to steer the mind from one focus to the other focus and we have to understand the reason why we are so negative and hard on ourselves is not because it's so fun oh i love to whip myself no it's to be safe on some level you believe oh it's better to be hard on myself than someone else being hard on me it shapes me up it keeps me on my toes it makes me move forward or when i'm hard on myself i don't put myself out there and become a target whatever the reasons are there is a protective mechanism behind negative self-talk and when you realize it doesn't really protect me it doesn't really make me feel better so let's shift the focus from protection to let's say being more content being more appreciative the mind follows you the mind is a very especially the subconscious a very faithful servant but it just does what it has been told early in life and it just keeps on doing it until we are changing it so do this little counterbalancing redirecting compassionate self-talk for two weeks you're going to notice your self-talk decreases by 80 percent i see this all the time with my clients it's really really works well but these things need to be in place the emotion need to be in place the focus and the sense of thank you for trying to protect me but right. it's not necessary yeah so these are all learned skills and i would imagine that many of them we learned in childhood um, yes. many of them we probably learned outside of childhood too i would imagine but i really like what you just said that resolving them doesn't take that long because I think a lot of people have this, I, this notion that it's going to take forever and it's going to be a lot of work. Well, think about how quickly life can change when something with a big impact can happen. You know, let's say you have, you know, for the first time seeing your child just being born, boom, everything changes or you're driving you know, down the same road over and over again to work, and then a child runs into your car and you barely you know, miss it. And you realize, wow, next time for the next few years, I'm always gonna slow down on this spot. I'm always gonna, I will never not pay attention. So it's about realizing our mind, our you know, brain can always form new connections, new neural networks. It's just about, how important is it to us? You know, what kind of emotional impact it has. If we try to change old habits without feelings, it's pretty much impossible. It's just like, you know, learning a language without ever having the hope to speak it or go to the country. So why even bother? So there is just something we have to feel, the desire we have to feel that there is something that, you know, gets us into another way of being and we have to be a little bit excited about it that's why i'm always against people saying oh i just want to get rid of my anxiety i understand it but that's not a good goal because that's what people do and then all they have is a measuring stick where's my anxiety is it coming is it i don't know i mean and all they focus on is anxiety that's that's not really a good focus what you right. focus on will always be present in your life and so yeah. focus on what you want to feel instead 
Right. Yeah. No, I appreciated that. And I liked you noted in the book that anxiety can serve as an inner compass uh, and it alerts us to when we're off track. And that's something that an approach I sort of took was I just realized one day that what would happen if instead of seeing anxiety as something that I am a victim of, that instead I saw it as an ally? <laughs> a lot would happen, right? Yeah, I mean, it did uh, happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a thing where I feel anxiety can be the catalyst, can be the compass, can be an inner messenger. It changed my life for sure. You know, growing up with anxiety, I knew anxiety very well, but I didn't understand that the anxiety also basically told me, hey, man, you're not living your life. You, you right. need to change it. And without listening to that, I probably wouldn't talk to you right now. So yeah. I told a client today, what if you would look here at anxiety? He loves sailing. What if you would look at your emotions in general, but like your anxiety is specifically like a star at the night sky and you see, oh, wow, there is a star and it can tell you where you are. Are you on track? Are you off track? Are you putting too much emphasis on what other people are thinking of you or whether you have performed well? And the anxiety gives you really vital messages on your journey. And that's, that's what I love about anxiety. It doesn't necessarily tell you the truth because it can always, you know, exaggerate and distort reality, but it tells you where you're at, at the moment. And when you are focusing more on not getting in trouble, than what makes me happy, then you know you're off track because that's not what we are supposed to live. We are not just to supposed to live in survival mode. Right, right. Yeah, I, before speaking with you, I made a little note here. I have a couple of songs. I refer to them as my shamanic healing songs uh, <laughs> that I play. And one of them is by a, I think he's a, a British artist. I apologize to him if he's not. I doubt if they will hear this, but Alex Clare. And one of his songs is Surviving Ain't Living. And so that was my little note here for this conversation. It seems yes. like that's one of the main themes that surviving ain't living. <laughs> I love that. And it's so true. And unfortunately, we often are just satisfied with surviving and making it through and looking for these little tiny highlights along the day. And I'm not saying everyone's life needs to be perfect and we have to now quit our jobs, our relationships, and just start new. But I, I just think we have to really enjoy life more as it is already. And that means also finding more purpose in the things that we do. I often feel like we do the same things over and over again, but we do them without really being fully engaged. And why are we not fully engaged? Because we are too defensive, because we are in those patterns because we're not fully responsible. You know, you talked about procrastination. It's a sure way to stay in survival mode because you're more afraid of failure than looking forward to making an impact, to expressing who you are, to sharing your gifts. And that just always gets you out of feeling fully alive. And, yeah. and that self-reliance that is missing because you tell yourself, oh, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then you never do it. That also gets you away from trusting yourself. I mean, if you don't really trust your own voice, well, who can you trust? So right. 
These are the things that I also feel like, hey, we don't have to change our lives. We have to change our attitude and how we get engaged in life. Yeah. Yeah. I, in regards to the procrastination, I am looking for the note here. It was from your wife, actually, because this really resonated because I think a lot of times when we think about procrastination and it is true that, you know, you know, Twitter, Facebook, what have you, social media is, you know, can take up our time and we can procrastinate that way. But I find that I procrastinate by doing other things, Mm -hmm. other work. And what you noted that your wife said, it was, she calls it doing all the right things for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you still feel productive, but you didn't really do the things that you were supposed to do. Things that you actually should be doing. Yeah. 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 But you know, with social media, that's something, I don't know. This is a, I think we have to also gain a greater awareness of what it does to us. And, you know, it's a little bit like when the drive through started, you know, the fast food and everyone, you know, just, oh, this is great. That's amazing. Or how smoking was just such a wonderful thing until we realized mm, it's not really that ha- that healthy. And I think that's the same with social media. It's such an addictive means of killing time. It's unbelievable how I often hear people tell me, Oh, I don't have time to meditate, but you know, I spend four hours on Instagram. There is a hole, there is a rabbit hole with a suction that gets us into this maze and doesn't spit us out. And I am very sensitive. So when I spend five minutes there, I feel like having had a Big Mac. I don't really like it. It feels like ugh, yucky because I didn't really spend any profound time. I was like, scrolling like through a tinder app it's like you know you you don't really learn to know anyone you just have little impressions and that's the same thing nothing comes really from it it doesn't enrich your life it does unless you focus really on one message or one interest for five ten minutes and then you move on and implement it in your life that's something we have to really also understand what it feels like when we are longer on social media and then ask does this feel good did I really enrich my life right now? Do I feel more connected to myself or do I feel even more confused than before? That would be a wonderful question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And what comes to mind again is my guy Thoreau and he said something, what was it? As if we could kill time without injuring eternity. Ooh, (laughs) that's a good one. Yeah. I have a quote in the book that says everyone wants to kill time, but no one wants to die. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And, but I think the point is, is that when we're killing time, we're just harming ourselves. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And, but why do we kill time? Because I think we just don't know necessarily how to be bored again. And that brings me back to most of us having just all these, you know, many agendas early on that we have never really learned. It's okay to be bored. It's okay to not know. It's okay just to wait until inspiration comes or if something happens that you know catch catches your inch we don't have to call ourselves lazy we can just be without distraction without any just be with yourself and see if you want to be in nature that's even better but just being what a concept yeah well that goes against our puritan roots here in the united states you know idle hands do the devil's work (laughs) i know i know that's that's unfortunate yes (laughs) yeah Yeah. but i agree i there was a 
documentary about the filmmaker David Lynch. And that's something that he does is he gives himself the time just to sit in his studio and his art studio and just allow the ideas to come to him. And he's always really adamant that he's not going to work on a movie or a piece of art or anything unless he has the idea. He's not going to force it. Just let it come. And see what amazing things he did. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a good concept, but you have to have trust and confidence in the not knowing. Right. And we are so trained to have to know, to have certainty, to have instant gratification, that this process of just being comfortable in the unknown is, is very, very scary for many. So that is a that is a good thing just to practice also to not know and not have certainty and still feel okay while actually feel free while you do it because there is something very freeing with not already being planned or not already having some you know map or marching orders in front of you i think there is something really creative and and exciting about it if we are embracing it it's always a matter you know do, do we embrace it or don't we just run away from it because it's different yeah. Not familiar. Yeah. Well, it seems like what is at the heart of so many of these patterns that we've developed is fear. That fear seems to be the primary driving force that we are afraid of. I mean, you mentioned fear of success, fear of not being safe, fear of not being secure. But isn't the fear often just illusory? I had a friend tell me once, you know, because I was often talking about wanting security, a sense of security. And my friend said, that's just an illusion. Mm. There is no security. It's just, it's an illusion. Well, it's, it's the security that, you know, people want often is a security that is everlasting. Mm. And that is certainly the same illusion than the solution of being in control. You're not in control of your circumstances. We're not in control of our future or the people around us. It would be wonderful if we could, but we're not. But at least we can find security in ourselves. We can control how we respond to any situations. That's the ultimate control that we have. But, you know, coming back to the subconscious, fear is one of the prime means of the subconscious to do one of its major jobs, which is to keep us safe. And as you will probably in 50 years say, see, since so many parents are now stressed out and worried and there's so much anxiety going on, I think so many more kids and grown-ups will turn into, I need to survive, I need to be in fear because that's a way for me to be safe, that the other side of the subconscious, the other major job, which is for us to find purpose, for us to be happy, gets completely ignored. And that is where we live really hollow existences. So fear is just because we didn't grow up with the certainty that said, you're fine, you're okay, don't worry about it. You don't have to have straight A's. You don't have to worry about a job or university right away. Be yourself, see what you like, see what you wanna believe in. Let's explore all your gifts and talents, man, no one I know grew up like this. No one I knew had that kind of freedom just to take the first 20 years of their lives to come to their own. Just like in the good old days, you know, hundreds of years ago in tribes, 
there was this allowing people to emerge and then go through these rites of passages and then, you know, emerging as, oh, you're the medicine man, or you are this, or you're that. But it wasn't always predestined. And, and that is something that I think is missing. And that's what we have to reclaim. It's never too late. Just because we're in our 50s doesn't mean, oh, it's, it's over. We can still reclaim what we're going to do with the next 30 years of our life and how we want to pursue them in fear or in freedom. And I think freedom is what we should look for. Freedom to be ourselves. Freedom to go for what makes meaning and purpose to us. You know, in this in the book, I write about these people that were interviewed in, you know, 80s, 90s, 100s, and to ask, so what is, you know, the, the wisdom you want to share with the younger people that are in their 40s, 50s, so that they don't make the same mistake. And, and two things they said, one is stop being afraid. That's a total waste of time. And the second thing they said, live so that you don't have regrets in the end. Because what hurts you the most is not what you're afraid of. What hurts you most is what you didn't do because you were afraid of. And that is, I think, something that really needs to wake us up because these people are not lying. They have nothing to gain from that. Right. It does, though, seem to become more difficult the older you get. Um, Why? I think that maybe there is more of a sense of need for or illusory sense of security. I And I'm speaking of my own experiences here. I had mentioned to you before we began recording this, that when I was younger, I quit my job, I sold everything I owned, and I left the country. And I know a lot of my friends at the time thought, you know, either I was insane, or, you know, they're like, Oh, I could never do that. But for me, it was freedom, I wanted to experience life. And then when that was over, I kind of became entrenched in a mm. different life. And at the age of 55, I don't know that I would sell everything I own and leave the country again. Do you have to sell it or can you still <laughs> simply say, you know what, I'm going to go for a year traveling the world and see what's going to happen? Yeah, no, I have too much student loan debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's what I mean. Sometimes, yes, these outer constraints make us have, you know, all the reasons why we shouldn't be free. But then the freedom starts in the small things. Yeah. You know, the freedom starts in the small habits. I mean, I had the habit of every day going at 6.30 to the gym until I realized, you know what, that's crazy. I'm not really happy with this habit. Let's give myself the freedom to stay in bed a few times a week and see how that feels. And I mean, we can find freedom in how we speak whether we are tipping around the uncle who is voting for Trump or if you're saying, you know, this person is insane and plus he's now also an abuser of women. So no, I don't like this person. But you know, it's like, how do we hold ourselves back? We can actually be more free and still deal with student loans or whatever constraints we have. But we have to also see like, you know, I always wanted to go to this drum circle Somehow I'm always telling myself, oh, I don't have time. Well, go and figure it out. Or I always wanted to do a little bit of art, but somehow I don't think that I'm really creative. Well, find out those little freedoms we all have. It's about not the big letting you know yourself just be untethered. It's the small letting yourself unfold. And that is something where we are realizing we are like little 
contracted beings and we just have to give a little bit more room and space to grow and yeah. and that's possible for all of us yeah. well for the record i am thinking of making a major move and completely reorganizing my life so not selling Here everything i own but doing something <laughs> radically different and part of that is because and this kind of fits in with some of the things we were speaking of earlier the jobs that we find ourselves in and you mentioned this great resignation and you said that you wrote that people are doing this because they refuse to sacrifice their their health and their well-being and what i noted is and they're tired of being exploited and i remember i worked at a university for a while and for some reason it was in the janitor's room but someone had written there and i have no idea who did this it was there the entire time i worked there they had a quote and i believe the quote strangely enough i think it's from richard nixon but i've always held it to heart and it was i shall allow no man to belittle my soul Oof, that's and, beautiful and it feels like maybe that's what's also happening that people are tired of not expressing their soul's purpose i think they are and that's you know a beautiful thing when you realize that's what you're looking for yeah i mean often it's unfortunately more the void yeah. and more this feeling restless or more feeling you know depressed or disappointed with life but if you're actually able to name that as a reason why you feel this way yeah. well, then you have a direction yeah. and i agree this is a very very big issue that we don't really follow the calling of the soul or don't really express our soul's purpose and but it's also unfortunately misunderstood often that it has to be a job Right. The soul's purpose doesn't have to do anything with a job. It can be anything but a job. Yeah. And I think we just have to also really be patient to figure out, oh, this is not about jobs. This is actually about something completely different. I talked to a client the other day who realized that her soul's purpose was to break the cycle of violence of her whole lineage. The lineage and the lineage of her ex-husband were all were about dominating children you know physical corporal was it corporal punishment all those things and and she was the opposite she was someone who separated from you know the husband who was violent she rescued the children she tre treated them with kindness and love and support and, and they became then also amazing parents and so the cycle that has been through generations she was able to break it and she didn't realize until we talked about it yeah that was my greatest accomplishment in life. And that is a gift that keeps on giving. And I can see this as a big part of my purpose. Nothing to do with her job. It's really just what she did to heal her lineage and heal her family. And, and in some ways, we can always find ways to heal. We can heal the neighborhood by making a difference. We can heal animals by feeding some stray cats. I don't know, we can find always something that resonates with us, that gives us a sense of en engagement and, and purpose. And it doesn't have to be a nine to five profession. Right, right. Yeah, I think healing is the one of the most important things that any of us can do, both individually and for the world, because the world is in desperate need of healing right now, I think. 
you know, as we began this conversation, we were, you know, I mentioned some of the statistics that you gave in the book that, you know, there, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety. And so healing is radically important. Yeah. And healing is really about also approaching the people that we feel are different than we are yeah. with love and kindness, because yeah. that's, I think, the what I see, especially in the US, as the biggest wound right now, that they are, whatever, 50% totally in one direction, 50% totally in the other direction. And, and within families, there is even no talking about it. There is no overlap. There is no listening to each other. And, and that is something we just have to, to heal as a, as a nation. We have to get a level of understanding and, and, and acceptance and compassion for each other that's right now completely missing. And that would be a wonderful healing to have. But again, we have to tap into our own healing, into our own compassion, and, or even to be able to give it to others. Yeah, I find that so much of what's going on in the United States is projection, that we're always projecting onto the other what we don't want to see within ourselves. And for me, that's the heart of compassion is recognizing that what I'm seeing in the other person, I'm, it's me. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, whatever triggers you, whether it resonates with you positively or negatively, it has a meaning to you. It is something that you want to look at. I mean, there are so many things that can be just, you know, ignored because there is no meaning to you. But then there are things that really, you know, I remember I was in, in Seattle in the molecular, molecular biology department and I had a colleague and she was the opposite of me. I was always like the good, you know, researcher doing five experiments all at the same time, trying to really be very conscious and reliable. And she was always going for two hour lunches, having a great time, barely got anything done. And she drove me nuts. But I realized no one pays attention to her. It's just me because I admired her for being so social, for being so easygoing, for just looking for fun rather than looking for always, you know, doing something productive, there was a, there was an admiration for her to allow herself to do something that I didn't allow myself to do. And, and once I realized it, I also found peace with her. And then she threw me a, a party and then everything was good. But it's like <laughs> something where I just feel like, you know, just look, like you said, look inside of what is actually, you know, trying to get healed within when you get annoyed by someone. Yeah. So our annoyances, our anxieties, our fears are our guides in many ways. And they can then lead us to the self-healing. And I love the keys that you give in terms of healing, because I think they're all radically important. You know, the self-compassion. I, I don't know if I'll get all of them here. Self-reliance. And that one seems that it would be particularly favorable in the United States because we like this idea of self-reliance and maybe self-reliance versus individualism, perhaps making the distinction, self-reflection and self-commitment and self-love. I'm sure I'm missing one. Self-responsibility. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think those are all vitally important. And yeah. Yeah. And I think they're, they're basically things we are all capable of. But we're not necessarily using those keys, you know, like the self-compassion key. I mean, this is something that 
you know, is a bit, especially when you, we just before talked about negative self-talk and putting yourself down and, and having compassion for yourself, and compassion for where this comes from. I mean, that changes everything that changes how you see all this negativity more as a cry for help yeah. than as a reflection of your truth. And, you know, self, I also really think self-love is something that's so difficult to attain for so many because there is this feeling of, well, you know, I, I cannot really love myself. I mean, I need to find love through others, even though there is this well-known saying, you cannot really love someone if you don't love yourself. So right. it's kind of a, you know, tricky thing to resolve. But how do you love yourself? I mean, I heard this over and over again from clients. Yeah, everyone tells me I have to love myself, but I don't know how to do it. Well, there are steps you can take. There are ways to do this. And, and in, in a nutshell, it's really whatever you know how to love someone, just turn it towards yourself. You know, make the, you know, the love languages is a very you know, well-known book. But do you know your own love language? Do you know what makes you feel good about yourself? And use that love language, whether it's words of affirmations, whether it's just, you know, indulging yourself with something, giving yourself a gift. There are all these things we can learn from whatever we did in a loving relationship to others or how others showed us how we are loved. We can use this for ourselves, and it's what we are supposed to do, not self-love in a narcissistic way but self-love in a way that allows us to really feel we are ultimately, you know, the person we're going to hang out with until our last breath. And we are supposed to believe and love and rely on ourselves so that we are also of better service to others. It is an integral thing. Only when we have a good relationship to ourselves, we can really be of best use to others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that quite a bit. And, you know, I think that it, on one hand it's tricky, but on the other hand, it's so easy. You know, I have friends that I know that, and I do this myself, it's difficult. Like I said, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, you just need to be kinder to yourself. Um, and I can see where some friends of mine hide from that. Mm -hmm. And that's the invisibility aspect. I just want to. Yeah. Yeah. away from everything because they're trying to protect themselves and they're trying to protect themselves but yet they're so hard on themselves yeah, yeah. So. well and i think self-love that's why it's you know more at the end of the book it's not the first attainable key i think right. it really starts more systematically and the first thing is that self-responsibility where maybe you are hiding and maybe you have a wall because you got really hurt, betrayed, yeah. rejected. And those shadows of the past are still hanging over you. And, and you feel like, well, I guess this is my lot in life. I will always have to just be a survivor of abuse or, you know, someone who just has you know, no one in life that really cares about him. So I just going to live in this victim mode. And, and then looking more at, okay, how can I turn this into actually my responsibility to grow from it? How can I turn this into my responsibility to see that this person may have done me a favor? I know it sounds really harsh when you get abused to see the abuser as someone who actually may have helped you to find yourself. 
But in the end, it's true. I know so many people that had early abuse in their life. And looking back, they realize that what they really admire the most about themselves is that they didn't become the abuser themselves. They realize I actually stayed on the path of decency and goodness and having empathy for others. And even though it would have been tempting just to not care and treat people as badly as I was treated, I completely saw how that feels and how bad that temptation could end up. So I stayed on my path of goodness. And, and they realized by just making the decision, they're already way beyond the abuser. They're already, you know, bigger and more courageous to keep their, their heart open than just to shut it off and, and feel like I don't care anymore and just become a bitter person. But you have to really be willing to see that whatever happens in life is an opportunity. It is not done to you. It's, as they say, done for you. And yeah. that is also something that shifts you around from feeling so wondering, why am I here? I shouldn't be here to, okay, I can see now that the past actually is a library for me to look into and see, huh, there's a lot that I actually did well, or there's a lot that this person taught me. And there's a lot that I now don't have to do because I already see the mistakes they have been making. I mean, the worst teacher, I mean, the best teachers are people that treated us the worst. That's something we just have to take advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. I like that in the sense that I'm going to try to be careful how I word this. It is using our power because a point that you make in the book is that we never give our power away. We always have our power. And and I think so many of us forget that. And it seems to me, you know, at the very beginning, I said that, you know, the victim and the procrastinator patterns spoke to me, especially the victim. And I realized a while back that the language, excuse the coarseness of my language here, but I was kind of getting off on it, being the victim. And, you know, I would have people like, oh, I'm so sorry that this is happening. And finally, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that at all. And it did kind of reawaken the inner power that, and it's self-respect in many ways as well, saying, you know, look, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Recognizing the individual self-worth and moving forward. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that's really important that you had the stage where you did feel victimized because one of the dangers is also that we are skipping that step of realizing yeah someone did us wrong i am victimized i was victimized doesn't mean i am a victim for the rest of my life but i have to also honor the pain and the wounds and all that 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 you know they caused me because otherwise we are just you know skipping over it and we are not really respecting ourselves either it's okay to get into a situation where you got victimized it's totally fine it's just a matter is this all is this who you are or not and then you made the decision not to be that person and i think that's just something that yeah i feel is very important to to not stay in any of those patterns and you mentioned before the chameleon pattern that see i think all of us live in the chameleon pattern because all of us try to fit in when we really think about on a day-to-day -day basis how we dress 
how we engage with others, how we are censoring ourselves, how we are looking for some approval. All of us are chameleons. And that's fine because all of us want to belong to the tribe and no one wants to get kicked out. But when the chameleon, and this is especially with, you know, people that are either just wanting to belong to some group, no matter what the group demands, or the people that wanted to be special and, you know, wanting to show themselves on social media as this is someone who gets a lot of likes. When we lose ourselves in playing a role and don't even wonder anymore, what's my truth? What is my essence? Who I really am? Because playing the role becomes our identity. That's when we get trapped. I got trapped as a doctor. I was a physician not having any clue anymore who I was, just being so immersed in that role that I went to parties and said, hi, I'm a doctor. I mean, who does that? I just didn't know what else to talk about. I didn't have any personality. I didn't have any interest that has only that job. And and when I realized how ridiculous this was, I really knew, okay, I'm in in a pattern of feeling comfortable in a role because I'm so uncomfortable in the not knowing who I am. And I don't think that you know, this is uncommon. I think many people can relate to that. Yeah. Well, and that's very common in the United States too, because one of the first things when you meet someone, it's always, well, what do you do? <laughs> I and know. Always, yes. You know, they, and they always want to know, you know, the, the, the career, you know, and instead of, you know, oh, well, you know, I read a lot, I go hike. <laughs> but it's not only in the United States. I have people you know all over the world that tell me when they are you know like retiring or when they have quit their job that they have really a fear of that question i know it's one client who had several businesses made millions from selling them and now the greatest fear he has is when people ask him what he's doing that he doesn't know what to say because he doesn't need to do anything he enjoys his life he does you know whatever he wants but he's afraid of getting judged for not saying, oh, I have this company or I'm a lawyer. I'm the... So it's, yeah, you're right. It's a big trap. And that is a fitting in chameleon trap. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've had these voices telling us for a very long time that we need to be more concerned about the quality of our souls than our wealth, our power, our prestige and things like that. So I think that what you've done in the book is a very powerful tool to give to people. And like I said, I love the, the keys that you offer. And I saw them, I related them a lot to sort of existential philosophy with the choices mm. that we make and that we have the freedom to make those choices and to live authentic lives, you know, that we are the authors of our own lives and we can change our stories. Yeah. And I think we, we really long for this. I mean, you talk about the soul and, I think the soul is always intact. It's just us, you know, not necessarily paying attention to it. And and I do feel we have to listen to the yearnings inside of us. And, you know, one chapter in the book is about remembering your innocence and remembering who you were when you didn't have fear, when you weren't in survival. And, and there are so many things that we dreamt of that was important to us that, you know, we're unique expressions of ourselves and those innocent traits i think they're a part of why we are here they're a part of what the soul wants us to 
to share with the world. And it's a wonderful thing just to contemplate. Oh, I love to do skits, or I really had a vivid imagination. I believed in magic or whatever those things are. Just open yourself up again to this innocent self, because I think there is where a lot of pleasure and joy and, and purpose is hidden and, and can be reclaimed. Yeah. Yeah, to tap into our innocent child, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you know, when you go out in nature, I mean, there is really, I think when we're with animals and when we're with nature, we get in touch again with that, you know, innocent self. I mean, mm -hmm. I have horses and it's always amazing to see how people respond to horses. There is like a child like, oh, wow, yeah. when they see a horse and that's almost deeply ingrained in us that we are just, you know, losing all our filters or all our mask and we're just like in awe of these beautiful beings and you know horses do this I mean horses are just such a they're so sensitive they always get you connected to yourself in amazing ways but I think there are also other opportunities just being there and you know just feeling that there is also just freedom in playing freedom in, you know, staring little holes in the air and not doing anything, letting your soul dangle around. And that is something that I just feel we should practice, practice being free just to be our innocent selves. Yeah. See what yeah. comes out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And yeah, give up on the illusion of always having to hustle. Yeah. Wow. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be really amazing. But that also means like give up on looking to go to the mall for recreation. Right. I mean, this is not a recreation. I mean, there, you know, this is also something I think we can just do much better to find other ways to, you know, enjoy our free time. We don't have to consume. We don't have to look for the next little dopamine hit because we got something. We can also just find other ways, much more enjoyable ways to have simple pleasures that in the end are much more fulfilling. And one thing that I also find we can definitely do better is to have better conversations. You and I had a wonderful conversation. And these kind of conversations, I think, are possible for, for all of us. But somehow we are often keeping it on the surface. We are not necessarily really sharing our or deeper selves. We're just staying in the safety zone of, well, I know that's acceptable. I know that's expected from me. So, so just connecting more to the other person also through your vulnerabilities. I often hear people telling me, man, telling me, you know, when I opened up to my buddies about my anxiety, guess what? Everyone said, I'm so glad you talk about it because I have anxiety too. And, and now it's a much closer bond because we, bond more through the truth than through, you know, the lie and the pretense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to work on something for masculine spirituality. And I think that men in particular suffer quite a bit and it's a quiet suffering. And we see sort of the negative aspect of this with, especially in the United States with, you know, I guess they call them the incels and the proud boys and whatnot, but there's a, there's a crisis, you know, one of the statistics that I recently came across is, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of concern about guns, rightfully so. And the latest figures we have, I think it was 
from 2020, there was like 45,000 gun deaths in the United States. And out of that, 54% of them were suicides. And out of those suicides, it was 80% men. Whew. Yeah, I heard that statistics. It's pretty shocking. Yeah. It's really shocking. Yeah, and I think it's because men don't know where to go. I don't think they know where to turn and or that they can turn to each other to have these kind of conversations. Well, and I also feel like, unfortunately, there is a misconception of what it means to be a man. Yeah. And what is expected to be a man. And there's a lot of pressure. You know, you're a man when you are a breadwinner, when you're successful, when you're this and that. And you're not a man when you're vulnerable, when you're scared, when you feel uncertain, when you're insecure. And yeah, and so all those things are hidden. And that is definitely a, a sad story. And I feel that, you know, this is also something again, that asking for help is actually the most courageous thing you can do. It's a great sign of strength that you have the awareness to say, I don't know. I don't have the answer. I need help. I need someone to to show me what's inside of me because I, I cannot see it. And yeah. so I definitely would invite anyone who feels desperate to know asking for help is actually something that shows you what you're made of someone who cares and someone who is strong and someone who is not afraid of saying, I don't know. And I always admire people that do that. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of hope for healing and I applaud everyone who makes it their purpose to help healing the world. So I thank you for the work that you've done. Thank so, you. Thank you. I know that we are out of time. So let me ask you two quick final questions. What's coming up next for you? Well, I am offering soon a new course, which is, you know, a course that is about anxiety from anxiety to empowerment. And it's, it's a way for people to really learn to completely shift their mind around anxiety, getting out of this, you know, either condemning it or demonizing it and, and seeing it as the opportunity. And so it's a course that it gets you involved in that process of using anxiety as your navigator. We're going to offer also a tour to Egypt, which is something we love to do these spiritual tours to Egypt, which is all about the relationships and the inner relationship with yourself. And other than that, you can find my podcast on YouTube and everywhere. It's Empowerment Solutions, Spotify, Instagram. And yeah, my website is Dr. Friedemann. F R I I mean D R F R I E D E M A two N dot com. Okay, wonderful. I will put a link for the website in the show notes in the video description, as well as links to your latest book, The Empowerment Solution. I think that you give a lot of helpful guidance in, in the book. You know, we didn't talk about some of the exercises that you give because I want people to buy the book. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it's definitely a workbook. There are a lot of tools. I counted once there were like 24 tools in the book you can use. So your toolbox yeah. is pretty, pretty filled up with that. Yeah, it is. And it's a, it's a good read too. I really enjoyed it. So Friedman, thank you so much for your time this morning. I have very much enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Very much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. 
And that's a wrap on episode 88 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, then please consider becoming a patron. You can find a link for the Patreon in the show notes or the video description. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. And another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family members, coworkers, even anyone that you think will enjoy it. And please share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. So once again, if you feel moved by the rebel spirit and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, make sure you hit that uh, thumbs up button and uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, be sure to hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.